Boat Trader is America's largest boating marketplace with over 100,000 boats to choose from. We offer simple, comprehensive solutions for those looking to sell, find, and finance new or used boats. Visit BoatTrader.com to get started. At Midway USA, we know the AR-15 is one of the most popular rifles in modern American history. Known for its modularity and widespread use, it's often considered essential to any gun collection. The essential things you need to run an AR-15 are usually always in stock during shortages, things like magazines and 5.56 ammo. Whether you're looking to buy a new AR-15 or buy parts for your modern sporting rifle, log on and for just about everything for the outdoors, shop MidwayUSA.com. Welcome to Latitude's In Session Podcast. Joining me today on the line, I have a mountain man from Idaho. You heard from his son last week. I'm talking about none other than Troy Pottinger. Troy, thanks for coming on the show today, man. How you doing? Man, I'm good, Jake. Uh, really a pleasure to be here, and thanks for having me. Yeah, of course. You know, we've been sitting here talking on the line for looking 45 minutes-ish. I probably should have hit record a long time ago, but I think that's okay. I think we have a good show in store for today. I'm really excited about it. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it, Jake. You and I go back farther than probably real people realize. Um, I was thinking about it today driving home. You and I have been talking a, a long time just privately behind the scenes about deer and I feel like we you know we've never met each other face to face yet but I feel like we have a very we have very similar uh you know mindsets and philosophies and just a lot of things in common when it comes to hunt whitetails and I feel like it kind of just we gravitated towards each other a long time ago you know we're I, I don't know exactly how old you are but I know we're probably over 20 years different in age but we have talked a, a lot over the years and just kind of checked in on each other and bounced stuff off of each other over the years. Yeah, we, we really have. And, you know, I think like you brought up, we have very similar mindsets and what I can say to that in response is that I've learned from you and from guys like you that I've looked up to as heroes for a long time. And so, so you're kind of molding the younger generation, if you will, you know, like these guys that are really serious about this, that are coming up that are listening to you and other guys that are just absolute killers and getting it done and good family men and everything else we listen, we pay attention to every word that you say. And a lot of us are shaping our lives around that. So keep doing what you're doing, man. I really appreciate the fact that you've been putting out information for a long time. And now I get to have a podcast with you tonight. I mean, how exciting is that? I might be as excited as you are. You know, you, you had my son on a week ago, which I thought was, you know, obviously 100% was totally something you had thought of and you actually got a hold of me and said hey troy what do you think and i was like damn what a great idea you know and and i thought wow i i never even would have thought of that but it totally makes sense and i think that's super cool um what you got going on right now and and just your content already i mean i'll be honest there's there's two or three um entities in the whitetail world that i turn on and listen to and don't miss and there's a lot that I honestly don't turn on and I don't want to rub anybody wrong, but I want to turn something on where I have a chance to, well, one, I, one, I want to, I really enjoy certain people's content, but I always want to learn. And, you know, you're one of those guys that 
I don't care age isn't a barrier none of that none nothing like that is a barrier i like the guys that you're talking to but i turn you guys on you you two or three or you know maybe four that out there that i know that if i turn it on there's a good chance that i'm going to hear something that's like yeah that is a quality info that i can use uh maybe from my everyday life to my world of whitetails to who knows uh why for sure but i'm going to get some quality out of it so no, I really, really appreciate it and looking forward to our conversation today because, like I said, we, we have spent a lot of little short conversations over the years behind the scenes just basically kind of keeping tabs on each other but also rooting for each other. Yeah, and that's that's really cool, man. I really appreciate that, and I really root for you and Tyson and, you know, all those guys that I've said I look up to, and it's just it's an absolute blessing to be able to talk to you guys and uh I couldn't be more thrilled for tonight's show. So so what do you say we get into this thing, man? You about ready? Let's roll. I'm ready. All right. So I had this thought in mind and it's going through things that we could talk about. And I was like, you know what? Troy is about 90 days out of season now from his opener. And I'd really like to just take a deep dive into your process 90 days out and what's going through your head, you know, your your priorities and what you're really going to be focused on. So let's dive right into that. Let's dive into, in your opinion, your number one priority 90 days out from season. You know, it's... It's good, Jake. I just came off my boot camp. Um, I do that mountain whitetail boot camp, and I had it Saturday. And I had guys from the West Coast, uh, as far as Eastern Montana, all the way down to Oklahoma, fly up, and and I try to keep it really small. Um, being a teacher my entire life, I understand the importance of uh, small class class size, so that I can really give guys a lot of one on one time. And man, we want to talk about priorities right now. I was just teaching it on on Saturday in that camp, and actually got to take the guys out in the mountains and actually. Um, practice some of it in person to them and show them and break a bunch down. And um, But it's all about, for me right now, my priority is I'm locating. Uh, location is my number one key priority. When I say the word location, I am locating at this time of the year, potential targets, relocating some survivors, uh, probably work. I work as hard in June and July as I do any time of the year because I'm battling green up in the hot, hot weather. Um, but again, because of my teaching career, I've taught myself to be just 100% all in full, full throttle, uh, this time of the year, locating the kind of buck that, that I want to get on. So I'm either locating a new buck through prospecting, or I'm confirming that a survivor buck that I want to target, or maybe even targeting a year or two down the road, but I know he's, you know, going to be something special in the public land. Um, I am putting all of my work in right now on locating uh, newer survivor bucks. And so speaking of that, I mean, I'm basically doing the same thing. Like my summer approach is really just trying to build up inventory. And the thing that I personally battle with is like, what percentage of my time should I spend prospecting for new deer at this point versus just trying to set my traps like you do for deer that I already know about, whether it's a deer that I want to chase this year or a deer that I want to chase in the future. So when you look at your overall summer approach, what would you say like the percentage of your time is where you're chasing after a new buck and prospecting, if you will, or going after deer that you're anticipating being in those areas? I think 
a lot of it is situational year to year, Jake, based on what my goals are. I am such a goal-oriented human. My entire life, everything I've ever done has been based on goals. Uh, I write them down. I put them in places. I look at them. I don't know that anybody else sees them, but I, I place my goals to where I see them all the time, and they remind me of of what I'm trying to, what what next step I'm trying to get to. And so when it comes to the situational bucks I already have versus bucks I'm prospecting for every year, it might change a little bit. And I would say I probably have as lofty of goals as as I believe are possible. And sometimes I think people might think they're, that's really not possible, but I keep it real to what I actually experience and see out here know is possible. So, for example, this year, and a way to explain this is I've got a buck that if he survived, and I haven't confirmed that yet, if he survived, he's going to get a ton of attention just because of the the goals that he checks off for me. You know, he is one of those bucks that might be a once every 20 year type whitetail for me in the public land mountains of the Northwest versus say Jake a year where I just don't have something like that coming back and I'm out looking for a handful of certain caliber of bucks that I want to try to kill uh, so that I'm not putting all my eggs in one basket. So that might dictate, you know, how much ratio of it, of time I put towards either survivors or new bucks. I like that a lot. That makes sense to me. And let's get into that that giant survivor buck, if you will, the one that you're you're going to be looking for this summer. I'm I'm sure you've already been out quite a bit, but uh, but so how are you going to go about finding that deer and locating him and seeing if he survived or not? Like, what's your process look like as far as that's concerned? Well, I think one of the things that I've evolved into as a whitetail public land bow hunter is I probably scout all the other hunters and hunting pressure in my areas. I think I put more time into that nowadays, um, the back scouting on them from last season when I found this deer, since this deer is pretty new to me. I've only had one year under my belt with this deer. And that that's part of the equation. I'm doing a ton of human scouting. Looking back on last season, I spent more time last season scouting the humans in this area and how they were moving this deer on me than I actually did hunting the deer. Now, are you, are you talking about like what ways are you going about scouting those humans? Are you like running cameras on access trails or checking boot tracks or? I personally won't like run a camera on a access road or something like that to people. I just won't do that. But Jake, I'm big in the snow. You know that. I basically have put in a lot of time hiking, e-biking, driving, literally driving a huge area around this deer and checked on every piece of evidence in the snow. We got snow really early last year of where everybody was. Now, you'll hear me talk about it. You've heard me talk about it in other podcasts. The snow tells you everything. Tracks tell you everything that are fresh. And it not only do they do it for my whitetail bucks that I kill, oh my gosh, I use it to track every human and how they're accessing, where they're walking, where they're parking, uh, how they're getting into certain pieces of the country that I need to be able to get into and and potentially kill this deer in. I did a lot of that last year on this buck um, just because he was so new to me. And that makes sense. So you're spending a ton of time verifying the hunter pressure, and that's kind of giving you your first piece of evidence if you think that deer survived or not, correct? Yeah. I wanted to see where his pressure was coming from because, Jake, I can scout people and then make a pretty educated 
uh, guess. I don't know if a guess is the right word, but I can make a pretty educated. Uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Just a, I have a good idea of where I think that buck will push to and where he'll live and hide out during the heavy rifle pressure. And to be fair to your listeners, the rifle pressure on this deer is all of October, all of November. So it's a, a ton of rifle pressure. <laughs> Yes, a ton of rifle pressure, Jake. And uh, I've talked, I say the word hideout a lot when I talk about mountain bucks that I hunt. They truly have, almost like the old outlaws in the wild, wild west, they have hideouts. They go to their hideouts, they get away from the rifle pressure. And I have trail camera evidence of this, videos of this for years on the top, most top end bucks I've ever hunted in these mountains. They will literally make themselves stay very bedded and very tight to security, heavy security during the daylight. And then they'll do all their work at night. And then they will frantically get back to their hideouts and bed all day, even if it means leaving a doe. And I I've seen it. And I have videos of like two of the top end bucks that I've never killed in my life. That's why they were so hard to kill. I would have them at nighttime, literally dogging, and I know they were breeding that doe at night. I know, I mean, they were with her through the night on my trail cameras, on my videos, chasing them. I know they're breeding them, but as soon as daylight hit, I pick them up a thousand feet up in elevation, going straight uphill with a downwind thermal at gray light, getting back to their hideout before any human gets into the woods and everybody's lowering them in elevation and they hide out. And then in the evening of gray light, they show back up way up high where I'm monitoring them, trying to kill them close to their beds. They don't even show up on me till the very last few minutes of shooting light to go and descend back down into the doe family groups. So they're just extremely cagey and that's that's how they survive. And they will they will walk away. Yes, they will leave does that they're breeding at night, exit, go hide, come back and do it again at night. So this whole scenario with this one buck that you're trying to locate right now is really intriguing to me because it's something that I deal with quite a bit here where I'm trying to go through that same process and I've never already, I've never looked at it the way that you're looking at it, where you're, you're trying to just verify the hunting pressure in that area and doing like that big loop right off the bat. And I can take that and, you know, mesh that into my own strategy already. So if you don't mind, I'd like to continue on with this scenario. I just feel like it's going to be extremely valuable, not only for selfishly for me, but I think a lot of people are in this boat where they have a buck from last year, they have historical data of them, and they're really excited to try to pursue that deer this fall. And so I, if you don't mind, I'd like to stay right on this topic and just kind of roll through. So you've, you've verified the hunting pressure in the area. You've been doing a ton of scouting of the people and, you know, trying to figure out where he would be hiding out, you know, what his travel routes are and how he's how he's getting around that pressure. Once you have that data, what are you doing with that data? What's your next step in trying to locate that deer? Yeah. And that's kind of where I'm at right now is right now, literally right now today, uh, three, three or four days ago, I'd have to look on a calendar. I was up working on him um, right now to locate him, to answer your question, based on my data and how I see it in my mind, a map of it now in my mind, because I mapped it all out last year on where all the hunt pressure was and where he where I was getting him and where he was moving to, to avoid everybody um, through September, October and November. Now what I'm doing is diving back into that same uh, topography, probably about a, oh, about a three to four mile area, Jake, a really big area. And I'm, I've wind map, I've mapped out all of the best wind for him into certain mountainside pockets and ridges 
uh, benches north and south for the hot summer. You know, it's not, almost 90 degrees today. Um, favorable seasonal changing every two to three week food sources. I mean, everything. And I'm mapping out in my mind, where's it going to be in June? Where's it going to be in July when it gets real hot? Where's it going to be in fire season? Where's it going to move to when it's 100 degrees every day, you know, and 90 or 85 degrees up in those mountains, even at his high elevation? You know, what northern base is he going to hide out in? Because if I can't pinpoint within two to three, maybe 400 yards at the furthest location of where he's bedding, I have no chance on killing him August 30th. So I have to get him locked in. And I'm just pushing in right now um, with my setups in strategically placed spots that set up great for him, but also that I can infiltrate without blowing him out of there. And I'm just trying to move in on him right now. I'm creeping in on him um, and trying to pick him up. He's, he'll be he'll be grown well enough right now. I'll know who he is if I catch him on camera, if you will. And I like that about June and July because you know who they are. By July, you really know who they are. So uh, that's what I'm doing right now, Jake. I've done this for years on these old, and my bucks are hermits. They never hang with another buck, my old ones. They're always by themselves. Everything I had on him last year showed me that in August and September, he was never with another deer. Um, even into October, November, he was always by himself, checking on things, never hanging out with other deer. So yeah, I'm creeping in on him right now, Jake, with setups to try to figure out what he prefers and also based on last year's September data, the reason why he was there last year. And if I'm going to see the same type of pressure or non-pressure in certain terrain areas, just like I did last year and where I did caught him, like I had him like eight days in a row or nine in velvet after the opener. And he actually held his velvet a long time, uh, but I couldn't hunt him because of a forest fire. Everything was locked off and I couldn't get in on him. But my camera told me all that after I was able to get in a month later. So I have a ton of questions about what you just mentioned. I mean, that was like, I, I've just got so much running through my head right now. And I'm thinking about a particular deer that I'm after this year. And one thing that I'm trying to find a balance on is the, like you mentioned, creeping in on that deer with your setups. So to me, it sounds like, and correct me if I'm wrong, but it sounds like you're almost stage setting up these traps until you find him. And I really like that approach. Do you ever go the opposite route too and set up some of these spots in like anticipation of where he's going to be as well? Like, you know, you mentioned creeping in. Do you have, do you have setups already set up like where you think he's going to end up as well? Or is that something that you're going to work on as summer progresses? I've already got stuff in place from last year. So the creeping part of this is new stuff, new, new setups. Um, but again, it's, you know, Jake, sometimes, you know, if I, if I didn't have him and if I was really struggling and if I can't find him, I get way more aggressive, if you will. But right now, because I have the time being a teacher, my last day of work is is Friday and then I have 80 days on, on my schedule. And I and I do work in the summers, but I get to create or I get to purposely work the days I want to. I control that in the summers so that I can strategically go out and scout. You know, and I'm not just scouting this deer. I hunt two to three states every year. And then this year I'm headed north into the north country also. We can talk about that later. So I got a lot on my plate, but I'm super excited because it's all whitetail stuff. Um, but yeah, both creeping, creeping, also going off the last year's setups that are already rolling. But also because I have time, Jake, I'm a little, uh, I would say, not as aggressive, meaning 
I'm just inching my way in right now because it's early June. I'm going to give you a scenario down here that I have and see how much it relates to what you're dealing with there. So down here in Southern Ohio, I have a buck that is in an area where the deer are just very nomadic. And I think they're that nomadic because the food, the food sources are just constantly shifting. You know, like if we have good oaks, they might be shifting oak flats on a three to five day basis even. And the approach that I, t- I try to take on that deer is I try to just cover all the ground in that system, find all of the bedding and find all of the little nooks that I think that he would want to be in that suit a mature deer the best, and then locate those food sources that are nearby to that. And then I would like try to set up my traps in between that bedding and the food source. So say that I have like a, a north facing bowl with a, with a creek running through the drainage that I know in the summertime will be pretty cool. And it's got a white oak flat, you know, 250 yards away on that north facing point. And so I'm going to try to figure out how to get a camera on a scrape in between that. And I guess the, the biggest thing that I'm, I'm trying to do here. And like, I think that I can look at your strategy already and see that yours is a little bit different. And I kind of, I'm going to take a little bit away from what you're doing because what I'm doing is I, I spend a lot more time anticipating that. And a lot of times it gets me in trouble because that food source won't heat up that year. And that camera is wasted because that bedding area was never even used because we didn't have the white oaks on that flat or we didn't have the red oaks on that flat. So I, I really like your strategy of just creeping in and locating the deer and then making the real-time adjustments throughout summer. I think I might get carried away sometimes and just anticipating everything that I think is going to happen. And, you know, 95% of that doesn't happen. Right. And, and you, the key word is we, we like to think and want to, and, and it makes us feel good when we anticipate correctly. But the truth is, if you go back and all of us go back and look at our, especially on Big Woods, Jake, and you and I are talking about bucks that have a lot of room to roam. Am I correct? 100%. Yes. So to be fair to the listeners, I'm talking about non-congregated. My The country that I hunt in, I can't even explain it, Jake. It's so freaking huge. It's unreal. It, it literally is. It's, it's, it's just hard to even explain. I'm not good at it because it's so big, but it's all I know. But all that to say, to answer your question, yes, this is the kind of deer where I absolutely anticipate where I think I can kill him. And I'm going to be honest with you about that. I think I know where I'm going to kill him, but I'm purposely, I know those locations. I'm purposely putting myself out there in a lot bigger cast of a web because this deer has food and water for days over several miles and he can be extremely nomadic and hermit and hermit like and go do what he wants he's this place is infested with mountain lions i mean i get lions on my camera every week up there so i also have to take into account that he's going to get bumped even if it's not me or another hunter so i'm laying out this bigger web to try to pinpoint and find where the best living conditions are for him and where he'll be really feeling safe, even outside of hunting pressure through the summer from the predators where he's going to spend most of his time, if you will, that makes and try to cap and try to capitalize on his bedding and where he's feeding and watering August 30th. That makes a lot of sense. I mean, that's, that's perfect. And you know, I'm, I'm visualizing your setups and I'm picturing them, like you said, casting that really wide net. So you have like this big giant web and then your setups are these individual nodes. And then I'm assuming like the center of that, the focal point would be where you think you're going to kill that deer. And then you have that radius build up around it. Yeah. Yeah. I, I have to Jake in this country, or I'm, I find myself disappointed and not in the game. If I don't give myself multiple locations to catch him on variables that I can't control. 
So let's talk about those setups a little bit. So the individual setups, you're finding, like you said, that food source and that little nook that you think that deer is going to be spending his time in as summer progresses and everything shifts. What does one of those setups look like? You know, let's take, let's go back and like almost cover some basics here. Like when you go into that spot, you identify what we just spoke about. What is your process as far as setting that area up to catch that deer there? Yeah, my setups, Jake, are always, always going to be a trap-based scrape. Um, I'm going to use my my scrape and my setup with the scrape to transfer scent at him pretty close to where I believe he's bedding. Uh, Big-time thermal pushes that'll aid me all day long, 24-7, every day I'm not there. And then it's also going to be placed strategically on prevailing winds. And in the summer out here, Jake, it's all west and south, so... I'm strategically locating these traps, uh, these big scrapes to work in, towards him and get him to check them in the daylight. And I'm pushing or I'm picking spots that have incredible security cover that my scent pushes into embedding. Um, there's always water close. I'm, I'm often in the early season, Jake, close to North Faces because that's where these old hermit whitetails in this country, they don't like all the bugs. They don't like all the, you know, mosquitoes, the ticks, everything. So they'll get into the Norths. They're just like these bull elk in this country. They'll get into those big Norths and they'll, it's like living in air conditioning, you know, for a whitetail in the summer. And they'll, then they'll bend out into the south and feed and out into the east and west. And it, it doesn't really matter. They get into those Norths to stay cool and not burn a lot of calories and that are there and they're always really close to heavy native browse and native grasses and um you know i've i've done really well in the mountains uh early season on huckleberry patches because they're they literally run right up till my opener so i target different food sources like that and some other uh wild berries too that are in the mountains and and consistent with my elevations also and i'm up in elevation too jake because my bucks tend to gravitate towards thermal safety with elevations and you know the the buck i'm hunting right now the the highest mountains in the local area you know pushing up around six thousand feet yeah that's i mean everything's just so magnified out there and as you're speaking i can sit here and i can like play through the scenario of Ohio in my head. And, you know, everything you're saying still rings true here. It's just on that micro level. It's not on that macro level. Like, you know, North Faces are one of my biggest tips that I have down here. Like I kill the majority of my deer on some sort of North Face. And that's where I find all the big deer in the summertime. And it's it's not on the traditional, necessarily not on the traditional points like you hear a lot. Like a lot of times I'm finding them in the nooks like you talked about earlier, like those cool, like wet nooks that a lot of times we'll have like old cuts that have grown up and they have a bunch of vines and uh, just a bunch of cover over top and it creates shade on those north facing slopes. And I just find them in those little tiny, might be, you know, half acre to one acre patches because we're on a micro level down here. But it sets up very similar, to be honest with you, besides, aside from the elevation and the predators. I mean, it's, it's very similar. I bet they have thermal safety in there too, with thermal push every day. If they're up higher, you know, if they're in them Norths and I, uh, it's funny you brought up that cold cuts. This buck, actually, there's a ridge that I'm going to go dive into that faces the north. National Forest Service and Forest Service logging practices have really slowed down over the last two or three decades. And this cut, this old clear cut that's been replanted and has reprod in it is probably 50 years old, maybe 60. That buck, it will not surprise me if he doesn't use this 40-acre old cut that has 40 to 50-foot trees in it now, and it's just full of brush 
and some of the some of the heaviest uh, brows and brush and and grass. I mean, just beautiful. I mean, the the grass in there. When I was looking at it, I walked up to the edge of it a couple of days ago. I think it was four or five days ago, and just looked at it and thought, man, this dude has everything he needs if he's in this area all through the month of September. And it was a mile hike out to it. But I looked at it on a map and it just made sense based on my historical data on him. And I'm going to double. I, I got to it the other day at the in the evening time and I ran out of time. But I'm going to double back to that spot. And I've done extremely well, Jake, on those north old reprod grown, well grown in, re, uh, replanted. And I don't know if they replant out where you're at. But ours are all replanted with big tim- or with timber. But the timber species creates an inside edge against the mature timber. And it's just incredible bedding plus travel edges for these old whitetails. And the thermals work perfectly in their favor for daytime safety, nighttime travel, and they're above. They're, they're above the majority of all the doe family groups. I mean, that, that sounds perfect. And I'm sure that you've developed an eye over the last 30 years of doing that where you can just locate those and have a pretty good idea that there's going to be a mature deer pretty close to that. And it's it's very similar down here. Our cuts aren't necessarily replanted, but they select cut them. So they'll like leave the white oaks or the red oaks, for example, and they just drop seeds and then turn into seedlings and grow up like that. So ours can be, you know, challenging in the, in themselves because a lot of times it's like when the white oaks start dropping, a lot of the cuts have white oaks within the cuts and it can really be a nightmare. So it's like, you almost have to pick and choose what deer to go after. Now, that's actually a good point. Do you ever find yourself, like when you get on a deer, do you ever find yourself getting to the point where you're like, this deer is just in an area where he's not really killable and I'm not going to, I'm not going to dedicate a ton of resources to him. Or do you always find a way to go after that deer? I have a question for you and please don't let me forget this question, but I'll answer that first. I almost always find a way. There's a way. Um, I do not believe in nocturnal bucks. I believe that some bucks only move 150, 200 yards in a day some days. Um, maybe maybe as minuscule as 50 to 80 yards some days when they're really feeling the pressure. But I always find a way. There's always a way, um, especially with scent and my scrapes. I can pull deer. I've always been able to pull a mature mountain buck to me a little ways. He just can't say no to what his ingrained instincts are he'll come and check my scrapes as long as i don't screw them up myself but i gotta ask you this jake you know we're talking about these norths and we're talking about and i've hunted uh, I'm, I'm gonna say southern ohio and i'm not sure if you're referring to southern ohio but i've hunted it and the country that i hunted in southern ohio reminded me of my country just shrunk down if that's fair it totally reminded me of that and then i gotta ask you What's your predominant prevailing early season like I'm dealing with? So typically you're you're talking wind, right? Yeah. What's your predominant prevailing wind typically for you in that early season? So typically it's between a south and a west and somewhere in there. I would say that the majority of the time it's some version of southwest. So south, southwest, you know, something like that. Um, but so so I can almost always rely on those north facing slopes being leeward as well as being the coolest place to lay. Well, you just, you just exactly hit what I deal with here. So we're ta- we're speaking the exact same language. My scale of elevation and size of country is just bigger. That's it. We're playing the same game, especially early. And I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, you've killed a couple of your best bucks early. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's just because I have, I'm doing the same, I'm doing a strategy similar to yours and I can learn a lot from you still, but like I, I have a very similar regimen where I'm fully focused on locating and dissecting that deer 
And it's all really, for me, it's really in anticipation of that first week or two. And that's because I'm, I'm hyper-focused on like the white oaks because there's such a good draw in the big woods at that time of year, or I'm hyper-focused right. on ag before it gets cut. And it just like, it gives me the ability to just be kind of efficient. You know what I mean? Like I have like a seven day window where if I put all the work in all summer on a deer, I can, I can generally be pretty close to the system he's going to be in. And if I know what system he's in, because the, because it's on a micro level here, not a macro level, like you're dealing with, it's almost, I, I think it is. I think it's easier to say, Hey, this deer is in the head of this drainage. It's a 400 foot floor to ceiling. And he's traveling 400 yards to an ag field. That's a lot easier to target than saying Troy's got a whatever your elevation range is out there that's you know it's ridiculous and your deer's traveling three miles to a food source so like we're playing the same game but the game here is just it's it's on a that micro level almost helps us I th it does it just it plain and simple does help us because we don't have the distance that you're dealing with I don't have to eliminate a bunch of ground when I get on a deer in a system if I if I play the game right, I don't pressure him out of that area and I'm the first person in there to strike on that deer and he's in that system, he really doesn't have a whole lot of places to go. Like he almost has to either run the side of the ridge or drop down. Either way, I can see him or kill him. And if he's not there, well, then I'm going to go hunt the, the next system over, which is really only four or 500 yards away. It's not like it's a drainage three miles away. So yeah, because the, because it's on a micro level, I do feel like it's easier. Well, I just think it's the part that makes it easier is you don't have to deal with so much ground, but I agree. What's your most difficult, what's your most difficult obstacle those first couple of weeks on, on what you and I are both targeting those first couple open. I mean, those first two weeks opening of the season, you know, maybe that first day, even what do you feel like your, your biggest obstacle? What keeps you from capitalizing most in that country? And then I think it's, for me, you know, I'd share mine, but I'm interested to hear what yours is in your mind. That's a great question. Honestly, I, I love how this is evolving a little bit, but I would say pressure aside because the, the hunting pressure typically in the first week to 10 days isn't terrible in these systems. Like generally I'm going to, the first good wind I have in that area, like that I feel I can kill that deer I'm going in and normally I'm the first person to do it. It's not very often that somebody is already in there. I would say that the biggest obstacle that I have hands down is the active food source because if I'm if I'm three days off on the white oak flat, I'm in the wrong spot. And so to, to break it down a little bit for you, like these hubs, because they're smaller, when you go in to pull your cameras and intrude, like it's like I'm leaving scent in that system, right? And that system's only so big. So if that deer goes through the bottom at all, or like if he goes in like the way that I set my camera up, if he if he crosses that path at all, because it's a lot smaller, like he has he has a really good chance of, of getting over top of my scent. So like for me, I typically like to check those cameras like two weeks out of the opener and even up to like a week out of the opener. But say I go into a system, you know, it's a north facing hub, drains out to the north. So with a south wind, it's leeward and it goes right to an ag field. I go in, I pull the camera and I'm like, okay, this camera's on a hub scrape 30 yards away. I know there's a white oak. This white oak is raining right now. And I have that deer on the camera. I'm like, well, I'm killing that deer, right? Well, I go in there on the opener and that white oak, dried up three days ago and that deer shifted one drainage over. So now I'm a drainage off. Right. And so like I, I start playing that if I don't strike right away and if I don't have the food source completely dialed, I just find myself starting to bounce. And then I try to get ahead of the deer and that's where I run into problems. So, you know, if you look at my last 10 years, like I typically will either kill in the first like five days or I struggle 
all season because I just have so much trouble. I, I'm like a one trick pony, man. I have one thing that I'm that I have like dialed, and then the rest of it I'm just trying to work on and build up as much as I can. But that's kind of you know my biggest struggle. I think you hit it perfect when you said you talked about ground scent and truly the size of your systems aren't that big. So you really can't screw it up. Um, and you don't get a lot of opportunities because you're dealing with a small area relatively that sooner or later, if you don't get that deer killed right away, he's going to bounce. So then you're trying to get back ahead of him. And it makes me think about what, you know, that I do that a lot too, but where I think I have a little advantage over your disadvantage would be I'm an immense country to where I probably have, it's probably a little easier for me not to have my big deer I'm trying to kill be forced based on the size of the system right over me, if you will. Like he's got a lot of room to move around. And unless I'm just really screwing it up on my entrance and exit into my setups, then I, I feel like I might even have, it might take him a little longer, if you will, to get onto me. So to to jump back to what I, I'm picturing here, listening to you talk about this and how I hunt these deer out here, I think it makes sense. Me casting that wider net allows me, Jake, to let's say, like you said, you go in, he gets your ground scent, you don't get him killed, he bounces on you because the oaks have dried up or whatever the reason is, I catch my deer in that next drainage over or that next ridge or that next, you know, big, big draw I catch him in because I lay that stuff out ahead of time to to catch him. So that I've learned this over the years. I hate being behind a buck. I like to be way ahead of him. And I like him to think he's ahead of me, but I catch him instantly when he makes a move on me, when he, when he has something figured out on me and I catch him instantly within a day or two somewhere else. And it's already in place. Yeah. The light bulbs are just going off like crazy right now. (laughs) I mean, that's like, if I look at my, my past season, that was my biggest issue was I've had cameras in an area that were soaking and I was shifting all these cameras around, right? Like I've talked to you about it. I had 50 cameras that every, you know, five days I was moving a set of five to eight cameras and then I would go check the other ones. And it was just like this big revolving door trying to just locate a deer to go after. And when I finally located one, because I didn't have enough resources in that area, I like, okay, he's here you know, an hour after dark, well, where's that deer coming from? And I don't have resources in here now. So now I have to waste days, not observation sitting, but like, but stage hunting this area off of the beds that I know of from my scouting in the spring. And that was just not the right way to go about that at all, because it took me, you know, a week, a week and a half to finally figure out where that deer was bedded. It was just like this slow process that it was just a risk. Every time I'd go in and I, what, you know, you go in, you're off. Well, he's going to come down through there and smell where you were at a half hour after mm-hmm. you tear your stand down and you get out of there. So I just got in this, you know, this, it was just a terrible process. So yeah, so I completely understand where you're coming from. If I, if I would have had that wide net casted in there, I would have had the resources that I needed. But like, if I look at last year, for example, down here and you deal with this too, like let's talk about EHD for a second, right? So now say that I did have a bunch of resources in that area, but EHD like last year comes into that system and wipes out you know, 70% of the deer and mainly mature bucks. Well, now I casted a wide net in that one system, but because I took resources away from, you know, three or four other systems, I don't have, so it's like, it's the balance, right? Like, how do you find the balance? And this is something I think that I'm going to struggle with my entire life. Deer hunting is like finding the balance between how many resources should I put in a system after one specific deer versus casting, like casting this ultra wide net across like 
30 systems just to make sure that I actually have a deer to chase come the opener when I'm efficient. So I'm not chasing my tail, you know, for five months during season. Right. Right. And I totally understand what you're saying. It was kind of like me getting, there's certain things that are out of our control that we have no control over and we never will. And one of them is resources getting depleted. Like my, my resources changed big time last early season when a forest fire drove basically everything out of the area, you know, and sometimes I have to shift when predators just change everything for me. Um, one thing I do, Jake, and, and I think us guys that target specific bucks is I also target great gene pool areas so that if one of my specific bucks for whatever reason is gone and we could, there'd be, there can be 10 different reasons why he just vanishes. Um, anything from a mountain lion to a fire to pressure, elk hunters, whatever. One thing that I always like to have in my back pocket in these big woods is I have a, I probably have, uh, probably five incredible, and we're talking big, big drainages areas, five total out of two states that always, just always produce a shooter buck. And sometimes those genetics are, they're just so strong in these areas with like five by five mainframes. And, and, you know, there's other things I look for, for great genetics, but I really do target a lot of mainframe five by fives and you guys call them tens, but I'll always be able to dive into those great genetic areas and usually get on something. And it's usually a long ways away from a target single deer I'm after, if you will. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. And so on that topic, this is a tangent that we're on right now, but I'm, I'm love this tangent because these are things that I've never really discussed. And I've got a bunch of questions in my head. Um, as far as like determining the areas of the gene pools that you want to go after, like, is there, is there any specific factors that play into that? Or are those just things that you've figured out throughout the years? Like, Hey, this area just, it just plain and simple holds good deer. And the reason that I asked that question is, I've never mentioned this on a podcast. I can't believe I'm letting the, the cat out of the bag here, but I can cross-reference a lot of the areas that I find the biggest deer in Ohio because I'm covering the bottom half of the state, right? Like I'm I'm casting this ultra-wide net like you are across as much ground as I can. I can cross-reference soil maps with big deer and with deer that have a lot of, like I've killed, you know, both of my Boone and Crockett deer in Ohio were non-typicals. And there's a reason for that because the soil that they're living in and inhabiting is very dense in nutrients and that's proven on soil maps. And so like, that's something that I'm paying a lot of attention to is when I go into areas, like I can, I can go to areas that just don't have good soil and they just really don't produce, like they'll have a random good buck, but they won't have consistent deer year after year. And then I have a couple spots that in the stars align on the soil maps these spots just every single year, they just produce big deer and it blows my mind. And there can be pressure in there. Deer can get killed. EHD can knock some of them out. I can count on these areas almost every single year holding Boone and Crockett deer. And it doesn't, you know, it's just wild to me. So do you have any factors that, that you're looking at as far as that goes? Yeah. It's makes me, makes my wheel spin. Yeah. I have a, I have two spots that are mountain butted up against ag that just the soil's incredible, and the bucks are always there, always. I can always count on them, and I always have a, of a oh, what's the right word for it? I always have an ace in the hole in those areas if a specific target buck doesn't work out, and I will put them in my back pocket 
and and can't tell you i've killed i think i've killed two of my top six bucks with that strategy of always having those just areas not specific deer right away but areas that i know there's some really good deer in and then when if things get to be a struggle on a specific single hermit buck that i'm after might be 100 200 miles away i'll go dive into those great genetic uh habitat great habitat enhanced genetics uh areas and always find one and a lot of times it's a buck that you know i i've kept track of over the over the last couple years or it'll be something that just shows up out there from november into december and ends up wanting to live in those areas but then also you jump into my backwoods true non-ag mountain country that i don't keep as close track of the soil jake but i keep track of the greenery the vegetation the heavy dense cover that's just full of browse i mean you got to remember whitetails browse 60 70 80 percent of the time especially in the mountains and you know i've talked to guys from the corps of engineers that have talked to me about the plant species and these old cuts that have been burned and reprodded regrown and they say you know some of these proteins in these plants are 25 27 percent which is just insane for the mountains and i think that explains habitat that grows big big whitetails in high elevation mountains because they do have those browse species there but anyway all that to say yes i I always go back to those great areas and they, I mean, Jake, it like 10, 20, 30 years, they produce a tank or two every year. Now it's a big area. And sometimes I got to jump into a drainage that's 10 to 15, 20 miles long. But if I, if I put my work in, I will always find the genetic strains. I'll see the tendencies. I'll see bucks that look like their grandfathers and great grandfathers. And, you know, I was just showing some guys some sheds the other day at the boot camp where, I found a 101-inch mountain buck shed years and years ago, 101 inches, and looked for, and looked forever. It's big, non-typical. Looked for seriously at least 15 years for the other side. And the process, what that taught me, looking for that other side, because I knew I was never going to find another 220-inch set of sheds. So I really wanted that other side. And this was way back before trail cameras, so I had no trail cameras of this deer. But in the process, Jake, to, to talk about these gene pools and genetics. Over a 15-year period, I was showing my guys at my boot camp the other day three different sheds that I picked up over a 15-year period. They all had identical genetics over 15 years, and the smallest one's 83, and the biggest one's 101. And it all came from the same gene pool over 15 years. So just stuff like that, that gets me to go back to those drainages. That's what gets me to go back when I see those those uh that DNA strand carrying on for that many years. And, and I haven't personally seen that, but what I have seen is like I've met a lot of the locals in these areas throughout, you know, I'm I'm in a lot of these areas all the time. And so they stop and we get chatting and they're like, Hey, I have a shed off a buck you killed a couple of years ago, right? And so I go down there and go in their house and the gene pool that I can see, you know, they're like, Hey, these were my grandfather's deer and my dad's deer. And these are my deer. And I'm like, man, these deer haven't changed. Like the, they have split brows and they have points all over the place and they're chocolate racks. And, but you go 50 miles away and they look totally different. And so like, yeah, definitely see the same thing here. It's just, once again, it's on that micro level, but I, it is very interesting to me how those, those stay true. And can you find all those factors that you talked about, your brows, your food, you know, a little bit of soil, things like that. And can you replicate that and get into good gene pools? Or do you feel like it's just so specific? 
Uh, I can find them, Jake. And when I walk into that kind of, you know, we talk about mapping and first time I, you know, this country's so big out here. It's fun for me because I literally have millions of acres. I'll never be able to scout it all and hunt it all. So for me, it's a lot of fun. And when you say, can you find those factors? I do. I, uh, I really play, pay extremely close attention to habitat when I'm on Google Earth and the Google Broad, so I can really look it over. I, I do have a really good base understanding of what grows at certain elevations in this country. And then when I factor that into doing a ton of research on, you know, the local deer in a new, say, area that I'm diving into, I'll go up and go to every, I'll stop in at every restaurant, every hardware store for miles and just stop at any place where people, because people love to hang the big deer in the stores and the little on paw shops and I'll look at the genetics. And I'm telling you, it's unbelievable what I find in the woods around those new areas that I do that scouting on habitat. I do the scouting of the locals. I look at all the record book entries in the counties. Um, I break all that down and then I go out and dive into what you said, the habitat that I already know, the plant species that I already know works great. The uh, just the cover, the security that can help them die, maybe potentially of old age because it's such vast, big country. And then you dive into it. And sure enough, you start picking up genetic traits of what should be there based on the research that I did. And sure enough, you know, I can look at a a whitetail that was killed there 25 years ago in the record books and in my Idaho's greatest whitetail book and go up into those same drainages and find those same genetics 20 years later. And to be fair to your audience, I'm a lot older than you, so I've had a lot more time to to do those years and years of research. You guys have to go talk to the old timers like me just to see just to see what was out there. You know what I mean? I love it. Yeah, I could go by the uh, the guy wearing the camel hat and the bar of beer and yeah, and go from there. Um, well, cool, man. I want to circle way back around. This was this has been, you know, we got off on a tangent, but it was a really good tangent. I feel like there's a bunch of information there. I had a bunch of light bulbs going off like crazy. I just, I love talking deer with you. But uh, but to get back into this year, into this one specific buck, I'd like to, you know, we talked about your setups a little bit and we talked about your staging your way into there. And one thing we didn't discuss is, you know, I know you're running cameras on these scrapes you're setting up. And so are, how often are you monitoring those cameras this time of year to try to pick up that deer? And what, I'll give you my example ahead again, so you can kind of see where my head's at here. But so my process over the last few years, and obviously it's it's not perfect. There's a lot of different ways to do this, but what I've been doing down here is I run cameras. I'll, I'll mainly put them out in June or July. And then typically like that'll, it'll take me like a month and a half to get all my cameras out. And then I don't touch a camera typically. And I'll start pulling them in like early September and I'll pull my worst camera first. Like the, the system that I think is going to be like, let's say I have a one to 10 priority. I'm going to go into number 10 first, pull those. And then as it gets closer to season, I'm starting to pull my better cameras and the better systems with better deer because I want the the better inventory and the better intel, but I still don't want to miss what I had in some of those other spots. So like for me, I just do the due diligence to check every camera. So like when you're going into these spots, like you were talking about earlier and you're setting up these traps and you're, you know, you're creeping in, how often are you monitoring those cameras in that area to make the next move? My system is um, all layout right now, all deployment. My goal every June is to have 75 to 85% of everything deployed. And 
I open August 30th, but I also have a ton of ground to cover. So bear with me on that. Not everything gets deployed by the end of June, but most of it does. And then I just keep working on a one month cycle, Jake, if you will, to where I date everything that I put in and I try to rotate back to it right at about 30 days, roughly 30 days. Sometimes that's 25 days. Sometimes that's 40. But I always try to rotate back this time of year. So June deployment, July checks, and I'm also still deploying and then roll into August with all I have to do is pretty much check and not deploy. But if I happen to come across something that I need to deploy in August, I still do it. And I'll do I'll still deploy in September and October if I'm making changes. But I would say 90 percent of my deployment is done by June or July. And I've already done a full round of checking in July on probably 75, 80 percent of the cameras because I really like that one month soak. And I don't feel like I intrude too much on my mountain bucks that way. Um, And again, fair to your listeners, I'm a teacher and I'm off in the summers. Now, I do work and I do stay busy in the summer with my other job, which is construction, bulldozing work, that type of thing. But I make time for it. I'll work like four days on, 10, 10, 12 hours a day. Then I'll go deploy and work on whitetails for four days. So that is kind of nice. And I've done that on purpose in my life so that I have an opportunity to get on these deer. If I didn't do that, uh, if I didn't, you know, make my work work for me, then it would be hard for me to locate these deer. But yeah, to answer your question, that's kind of my system. I'm actually opposite of kind of what you do. I like to go check on my top end bucks. I, I put the initial deployment into them. And I think a lot of it has to do with my pinch on my op- pinch of time on my opening day date being August 30th. So I really work hard on my known existing hopeful survivors right now and get all that laid out first because they're a guarantee to me if they made it. They're a stud. I already know they're a superstar. I already got intel on them. I already know a lot about them. So I usually go priority first. And I think you were saying you usually like to hit your priorities last. But it times out for me to where my priorities I mess with in early June. I mess with them again, meaning I invade on them in early July. And then I invade on them and I do it on purpose so that I can invade on them early August and be done invading on them. So I'm not too close to August 30th. And then my lesser priorities get checked closer to the August 30th opener, if you will. And to me, that just makes sense to me. I like to let my top priority bucks that I want to kill have a little bit of a soak and I overmark and retreat all my, I reset up or I re overmark my scrapes, um, treat them with my scent and boom, I'm out. And then they got 20 days to overtake that again for me. And if they've moved on me, I might be picking them up on a later check and then I got to jump on that. So I'm, that's my big cycle in June, cycle in July, cycle in August, if you will. And then usually by August 15th, I know who I'm going to try to kill, usually. So with this monthly cycle, we are, like, let's, the scenario that we played out, you, let's say that you have that buck on your camera, you go check it in July, the buck is there, he's hitting it consistently. Your next move is, is your next move just overmarking that and backing out if he's already there and he's consistent? Or are you going to try to broadcast, like make a different setup in that area? Or you already have that all done. Like what's your process if, you know, the buck that you're after this year, that world-class deer you're talking about, you go in there, bam, he is on your camera. What's your next move? He's on my camera and he's daylighting in July. Leave him alone. But like I said before, I have stuff already laid out on him in June around him 
in case he transition or moves on me. And what I usually end up finding on my on my very best bucks, Jay, because I'll usually get him on at least two cameras. But the one where I'm closest to his that right now time betting is why I have him daylight. And then I'll step back and look at that data in July. Let's say let's say he's on it in July in a certain camera out of say five of them in the in the zone or the area that I'm mapping out for him. Let's say one of them it shows him really daylight on. Then I go back in and I assess all of the vegetation in there, what's hot. There's a reason why he's there feed wise. There's a reason why he's there temperature wise. There's a reason why he is there wind advantage wise. There's a reason why he's there predatory safety wise. He's doing it all for a reason. Then I have to anticipate, okay, it's, it's uh, early July. What's going to change? What's going to dry up as far as feed goes? Uh, what's his water source going to be like come mid-August? Where's he going to transition to? And those are the places that I have pre-laid out on purpose based on where I believe he'll move to if he needs to. And a lot of times it has to do with habitat and feed, even over pressures, because archery elk season doesn't even open till, you know, August 30th or September 6th, depending on the unit the deer's in. And I'm not going to give that away or everybody know what unit I'm in. <laughs> yep, that's fair. <laughs> all that to say, all that to say, all of that factors in. And then I would say if I hold him at that camera that I checked early July, if I have him August 5th, the next month later, and he's still kind of doing his thing. He's in trouble. But a lot of times, Jake, a lot of times I end up getting my bucks transitioning to one of my other spots that I've pre-set up to catch him at because I've got a good idea of how seasonal food temperatures and pressures that are coming because my bucks will pre-stage themselves right before hunting season because they know what's up. Because here's what happens. What happens in, if you have an opening season for archery, elk, and deer August 30th, what happens in the month of late July, early August? What's the majority of all hunters do? They start start getting out there and setting up stands and everything. Exactly. So I, I have a, that's why I cast that net. That makes a lot of sense. And that was actually that segues perfectly into my next question. You actually pretty much answered all of it, but I think we defer here a little bit based on the different regions of the country because so what I see here in Ohio and it was kind of the same thing in New York is the summer patterns for me typically will hold true. Like if they're on bean fields down in the bottoms, those will typically hold true until roughly mid September. So like if we did have the August 30th open here, opener here, and I was getting that buck on camera in July, like that deer is in a lot of trouble because he doesn't shift here before August 30th very often. Like the the white oaks haven't started dropping yet. And that's like the biggest cause for the shift down here, I believe is A, pressure is probably a big part of it, but B, it's going to be the white oaks starting to drop. Like as soon as they start to drop and the bean fields get cut, the cornfields start getting cut, the deer shift like crazy. So that just typically happens here mid-September, but our opener isn't until the end of September. So I can't play off that early season very much. And I have to do the same thing as you, where I anticipate where that shift's going to happen. And that's a big, you know, I glass a deer on a bean field all summer and everybody's drooling over that deer. And I've got cameras right. two miles away on an oak flat waiting for him to come back there. But, but so my question was, do you always see that shift or not? Because like for me, if we had the August 30th opener here, because we're in a different region, that shift wouldn't necessarily have taken place yet. And we would be able to capitalize on that summer Intel but it sounds like you are seeing the shift before August 30th. I see that shift a lot if if I'm on a five-year-old buck. When I start hunting those six and seven-year-olds, they have taught me, and they do this, they pre-shift too. They pre-shift on me 
and they already know they know what's up so well when they get to that six seven eight years old and i and again i don't have a lot of those but go down in my basement and it's crazy a lot i mean i don't have a lot of those to hunt but down in the basement there's a lot of them hanging that are that old sometimes those five-year-olds still excuse me some of my five-year-olds will hang in there and live that month let's just say months before season because even in your country if you guys change to an august 30th opener you guys would kill the hell out of them for about five years and then guess what all those deer would learn to do start to shift early they would shift yep. yes so go back to my point here and i like chasing that five-year-old and older buck a lot of times my five-year-old bucks are more tolerant and they'll hang in longer at a place they liked in july when i get on a buck that's a little older than that he will almost always stay july and into the august or not july let me say this early august if he's there early august on that last check before the august 30th opener he will almost always be there for me opening day because he has learned where to be and he pre-shifts himself early before it ever shows up like a month and a half ahead of time if you will and it's ironic that i see that too elevation wise Usually where I'm at my highest elevations, where most dudes aren't going to go hunt a whitetail buck, he's so high up and away from all the other deer that they don't even matter to him that time of year that August 30th to September 15th can be dynamite for me, but I'm one-on-one with him. I might get two or three other deer on the camera, period. That's it, the whole month. But I am mono-a-mono with this dude, living with him. And he's, he'll come and check my scrape and maybe another deer or two that travel further will come by and check it. And it's just a very one-on-one type game sometimes with those real old bucks. Then, yeah. then they transit. Yeah. Then they transition about September 15th and they start, then they start living for what's to come with the rut. So it is, it, I mean, on those older class deer, it's very similar to hear where I'm doing, you know, with this late September opener, checking the cameras earlier mid-September. And if the buck I'm after is there, I'm like, man, you're in, you're in trouble because I know that you've, you've shifted. And with those cameras being in anticipation, like if I do catch one, it's like, all right, like you're here. And so that makes a lot of sense. And the way you laid it out, I think is just, I mean, that's awesome. That's uh that's yep. a light bulb moment for sure. So, you know, you got that deer on camera, you're going into the opener, you have him where you want him. Like we just talked about, you go and pull that early August cam. He's there. He's a seven year old buck. What's your thought process the last 10 to 15 days going into season? What things are you focused on to try to go kill that deer? Like on the opener, what, what do you need to see to go kill that deer? Um, on purpose, every time I do a setup, I don't waste, I never waste a move ever. I will not waste a move on a deer. So when I set him up, Jake, June, July, whenever I got, you know, whenever I got to build that setup on him, whenever it got built, that setup is dissected and perfected to kill at. So that when I roll in August 5th, 6th, 7th, 8th, whatever the rotation is, if he's on it and he's daylighting and I'm only 15, 20 days out roughly, um, I am 100% confident based on the tree I have picked out, based on the wind, based on everything that I have dissected in there for me to get to him, enter, exit it, hunt him a few days, that scrape that I'm going to kill him over. I am 100% confident I'm going to kill him. So then what happens is, is I am mapping out everything in my mind of how I'm going to hunt him that opening day. And I'm considering everything from, do I need to drive in a day early? Do I need to sleep on him at night so he doesn't hear a rig come way up into the drainage? 
Uh, how far do I need to hike in? Where do I need to park? How do I keep myself concealed from everybody else that uh, hunts the country or might be maybe just elk hunters are hunting in the area? If I believe other people have him on camera somewhere in the drainages, that becomes a factor. Um, I sleep on a lot of bucks. I My bucks are very privy to vehicle noise coming into drainages. Is he daylighting randomly in the velvet? early season and just coming through usually my early velvet scrapes have water really close on purpose which just makes sense it's really hot here and they're hot and they need to drink uh so i look at all of the info that i have on him you know and i've hunted all day sits before opening day because of random daylight visits or i might be only hunting him at a specific thermal drop thermal rise have to get in there only when the thermal and the prevailing is working right for me. Portion of that day, I might have to, I only might only be able to hunt him that way based on the intel of the wind, the thermals, plus what I'm seeing him move on in the daylight. So yeah, I just map all of that game plan out in my mind. And then I go in opening day with all that mapped out and all that detailed and hope that he has no clue that I'm even in within a mile or two of his area. And he has no clue he's being hunted and kill him and you know some of my best whitetails i've ever killed that, that's how i've killed him is the first that first early season hunt now i will say this i've killed several really nice bucks the first 15 days and i'll say first 15 days is september including august 30th and 31st so those first 15 days sometimes i kill them on the third or fourth day at the same scrape because and this is why my mountain buck frequency in the daylight at a scrape if i get them two to three days a week daylighting that's good for me in the mountains i rarely ever get them every day ever yeah I, I mean that makes a lot of sense to me so the the one question that i have there is at what point in time are you actually like if you're using a preset at what point in time are you actually hanging that preset are you taking a stand in with you on that early august camera check and determining then or do you already have the preset hung at that point and it's the reason i ask is it's a resource thing right like with you running all these different setups and staging your cameras and all these traps that you have all over the place like obviously you don't have a tree stand for all of those so at what point are you determining hey this spot deserves a set this year and i know that that deer is killable and i'm going to get it set up at this point in time you know jake i really base it on that august poll and again, for all your hunter, all the guys listening, whatever your opening day is, just think of your opening day. That 15 to 20, I don't even, you know, I like that 15 days out intel, 20 day out intel, um, because they're still in their summer pattern. They're really holding to it still. If it is my target number one deer, he's getting a preset. He's going to get it. Sometimes on that poll, Jake, I will look over the evidence while I'm up in the mountains on that pole and say, yes, I'll have something ready to hang and hunt then, or hang and leave. Then if the date of confirmation for me is closer to the opening day, I might go in, you know, where it's so close. I don't want to like invade again. And I find something that's like, holy crap, I got to set up on this guy. If I can't get it in within a day of when I check, I'm probably waiting till opening day or the day before opening day to slip in or the day of opening day to slip in and hang it and hunt it for the day. But I prefer, I really prefer on these mountain bucks on that first hunt, I already have it in place. And I'm going to be very frank and honest and candid why I'm close, close to their beds. And if they hear me set up at all, I'm screwed. And I mean it, these bucks are so used to lions and wolves that if they're laying 200 yards from you and you don't have some wind or something to 
divert their ears. And they, if they hear you or smell you at all on that day, you're going to kill them in this country. You have, there, there's no chance they're coming by you. They will not tolerate anything odd because they just don't have, they don't hear human noises unless they're bad because they're not around a lot of humans, if you will. So I really prefer that preset about two to three weeks out if I can. I hope that answered your question, if I can make that work. That is, it's absolutely perfect. And that's what I was wondering, because I know that you don't have the amount of human activity that we have here, where in Ohio, for example, and I keep going back to that, but it just, it's such a, it defers enough to where I think it's worth talking about. In Ohio, we have a lot of hiker trails, so they'll hear voices or like, like I have, I killed a buck that 186 was betting within 90 yards of a hiker trail. Like they were hiking above him and they were doing it all summer. And I hiked on that trail and like you could bump deer off it and they would just go bed in that same spot the next day. So from an intrusion standpoint, it's a lot easier to pull that off. Like if they get a, you know, if the wind swirls a little bit, it might be a hiker. You know, we're like down in the road below a half mile away because everything echoes up the valleys here. You can hear people talking or a motorcycle go by or like when I'm accessing that spot, I wait for a loud car to go by and then I take my steps and then I stop and I wait again for another car to go by. You know, it's like I have ways to mask that. So mobile hunting to me here makes more sense. But like in an area where they never hear or smell or see anything but danger, it's like pins and needles. It's it's a totally different scenario. And so I assumed that you were presetting them somehow and you had your, your regimen to make that happen. And it, it makes a lot of sense. I think that what you do makes a lot of sense in my head. And I even look at certain spots here, like those areas with the good soil we talked about earlier that just, you know, you said an ace in the hole. And that's exactly how I feel about some of these spots. And I've told myself over the years now, like you already know where the scrape's at. You ran a camera on that scrape four years in a row and three out of four years, you had a Boone and Crockett deer on it. Just hang a preset. Yep. Like just hang the dang yeah. preset and just assume that he's going to be there. And if like buy a cheap stand or, you know, like it doesn't have to be anything great and just hang it and go sit in there so you don't have to make that noise the day you're intruding because I'm sub, you know, 120 yards and I'm like, man, if I make any noise at all with this gear, that deer's got me. And so like I think about that same thing a lot and and so I think that we're on the same page there. Well, I think we all have to quit being so blinded by, oh, I'm only going to hunt this way, I'm going to hunt this way. You have to hunt the situational dependence of the equation. You have to, if you want to be good, like if you really want to kill, you got to break down the situation. You got a game plan for the equation that you're the playing field that you're dealing with and give yourself the most opportunities. That buck I killed this year, late season, hundred percent opposite mountain country, butted up against farm ground. That guy listened to tractors and listened to farmers talk on the mountainside his whole life. He lived a completely different life than the buck I'm trying to kill this year. Um, I could go in on that deer, and as a matter of fact, wouldn't have any issue at all of hanging and hunting on him. The reason I didn't have to, Jake, is I have the best cluster of scrapes on that mountain that I've killed, I believe, four or five bucks off of now over the last 15 years. Now, that goes back to you talking about your couple scrapes that produce a booner the last four out of five years, you just said, dude, if you don't have a stand there or don't go hunt that, I just don't understand why you wouldn't if they produce like that. 100%. You know what I mean? Yeah, exa that's exactly my thought process. Right, right. So it, it is everything we do in this white tail world is situationally dependent. Take the gear, take the method that gives you the best shot to kill that deer. 
When I go to Oklahoma, all I do is hang and hunt, and I love it. When I go to Iowa, all I do is hang and hunt, and I love it. I, I absolutely love my, you know, my custom gear setup and, you know, my four long, you know, people laugh at me because I hunt so high, but I, I like to hunt high because the mountains have taught me that. But I take my four sticks and my 1.0, and I'm the happiest guy in the world in that country. And it it just makes sense to move right in on those deer and get aggressive with them. The game I'm playing out here on this big whitetail early season is me and him, mono y mono, mountains only, any type of human activity he's going to freak because he doesn't get human activity unless it's dangerous. And that's all he knows. And he's heavily hunted by predators. So yeah, he's a crackhead and I'll have to play my cards almost perfect to killing no matter what. I love that, man. Well, we've we've covered the summer approach pretty good as far as like in-state. And I want to get into a little fun topic here that you and I spoke about a little bit earlier. I could tell that you were fired up about it and excited. And so want to dive into it a little bit. You've got a couple different hunting trips planned this year, and you've got some work to do this summer to try to get on good deer there as well. Do you want to go into that a little bit? Yeah, I, uh, I love hunting. I love hunting the South. I love hunting. I really like Oklahoma. Um, killed a really good buck down there a few years ago. So I've got some plans to get back to Oklahoma this year, all public land. Um, I've got some uh, opportunities that I really want to go dive in and hunt. And I'm scouting it right now. I'm e-scouting the heck out of it. But I'm going to dive in and hunt some Oklahoma country that's got a lot of terrain. It's not flat. And uh, I'll have a bear tag in my pocket down there, too, just for fun, since there's a lot of bears in the country down there. But, no, I'm diving into a couple of the the big uh, big wildlife management areas and some national forests down there that I'm just super excited about. Um, And I've got some good intel on some really good deer that live in that country. And then I am uh, got a good friend in Alberta that we're doing the hunter host program and I'm going to go up and actually scout with him this year in Alberta. And then if I find a whitetail and and the reason I want to do the hunter host is it's a, it's a once every three year non-resident alien opportunity. If you have a good friend in Alberta, that'll host you and I got to be with him. So he'll film for me and I'll film for him. But all that to say, I get to go into that country, scout it like I want to. We're going to be public land only and huge crown forest. And we get to scout it all out. I get to take my whitetail game to the Alberta whitetails in the vast forests up there and see what I can come up with. And the process itself doesn't take that long to run the documentation through and do all the paperwork. So basically the game I'm going to play there is Jake is if I find a buck that's worth traveling for and remember I can only do it every three years. So it has to be a buck I really want to go kill. Then I will, we'll run through the paperwork. We'll get it all processed and we'll go up and we'll do it right. And we'll go, I'll go after that buck together with my buddy and he'll literally be sitting in the tree with me filming because you got to be with him. But uh, that's the plan for Alberta. And then Oklahoma is going to be more of a, got a buddy down there that's going to hunt some country, that's going to be hunting country too. But I'm going to just get to go explore, hang and hunt, get on, get on the uh, sign that I find right now when I get there, but it's also going to be based on all my e-scouting that I've been doing with him, you know, over the internet together. So yeah, looking forward to both. That sounds like an awesome summer and awesome fall, man. I'm super pumped up for you. I hope that you find the buck that you're looking for up in Alberta. And I know that if you find him, he's in a lot of trouble. So I'm excited to see how that plays out. That's, that's one area that 
I've always wanted to get into and be able to do it my way. You know, I anytime I've ever went and hunted, even with buddies that where I had to hunt their stands, it's nothing personal. It just didn't feel right to me. And when I've been allowed to just do it my way, I usually end up getting on deer. So yeah, that's the only way I can really go to Alberta through the host system and get to actually put my footprint on it. You know what I mean? You know, so to speak. And and I don't know if those deer have been hunted the way I hunt them. So I'm really excited to see how they react. I know this, my buddy that's up there employs and uses the last couple of years, a lot of my uh, methods and he is killing it. Oh, I'm sure. I mean, I think that you can, you can take it anywhere in the world. And so I do have one question. It's kind of a fun question. You kind of mentioned it, but so what, uh, what type of buck is it going to take for you to travel up there, Troy? Um, you know, I want to go to Alberta for a couple of reasons. I really like the guy is just awesome. He's a good dude. Um, but if I only get to go every three years, the number that I typical wise, I, I, I'll tell you what a true, I'd love to hunt a giant, find a giant typical that truly like nets in the eighties or high seventies or mid seventies, like nets, like a giant or any big, I love non-typicals. Jake, I, I don't know what, you know, I, a lot of guys love typicals and I don't get me wrong. I love a big typical, but if I found a gnarly, heavy, massive, just brute of a non-typical, I wouldn't even care what he scored, but he'd have to be a, a brute. I love it, man. I think that's awesome. <laughs> well, hey, Troy, we are at the about an hour and a half markish. Um, I think this has been a great conversation. I think that there is absolutely a ton of information here and uh, you know, I can't thank you enough for coming on the show today. So where can people find out more about you? Uh, pretty simple. Just, uh, you know, I film and I'm at working for whitetail addictions. Um, and me personally is my Instagram is where I do all my hunt and talk with guys. So mountain man 33 on Instagram. And then I do have a YouTube page just under my name. Uh, it's nothing high production or anything like that. I usually just post cool, uh, video clips of bucks hitting my scrapes. And you do host that mountain buck workshop every spring, right? Yes, I do. And I have a, I have my, I have my Idaho one now and my Montana one. I keep the numbers way down. Um, I usually fill up real fast. I try to keep the guys around. I like, I like to keep it at about 10 guys, 12 at the most. And it's a one day, all, uh, all day class where we dive into everything like you and I are talking about half the day. And then we, I take the guys out in the woods and we look at it, we feel it, we see it. I practice it in front of them. I show it to them, break it all down with them in the woods. And that's where I feel like they really get it when they, they hear it in the classroom in the morning. And then we go apply it in the woods that day. And then they feel it, sense it, see it. And then it just makes sense to them. It all comes together for them. And then they go off into their world and they remember those kinesthetic lessons that they learned after hearing it on paper and seeing it on video. Then they go practice it. And I get a ton of, I just get a ton of great feedback from the guys I have over the years since I started my boot camp. They're just, they're killing their best deer, you know, ever or their best deer consistently year after year. I can tell you that I am definitely going to find a way to make it up there for that one day. I I need to go to it. I feel like it would just be so much great information. And you can, like we've talked about on this, you know, you can take what you're doing up there and just shrink that down to a micro level and apply it to a lot of different states. So I think that there's a ton of value there as well. Well, hey, Troy, thank you again for coming on. I really appreciate it, man. And we'll have to have you back on here soon. All right. It's great, great talking to you, Jake. And I appreciate you having me. Yep. No problem, Troy. Talk to you soon. 
All right, everyone. Thanks for listening to today's show. If you enjoyed this episode, please head over to iTunes and leave a five-star rating and a written review. We will see you next time. I'm Will Cooper, and you're listening to HuntStand's Make Your Mark podcast on the Waypoint Podcast Network. Stick around as I bring you more stories and interviews from veteran hunters and industry professionals who inspire us all to be better equipped in the woods and in life. Oh, that's awesome. Don't miss Thursdays with Saltwater Experience, brought to you by Golden Boat Lifts, every Thursday night from 7 to 10 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV, the destination for outdoor entertainment.